At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, what's up, everybody? Happy Friday or Saturday or Sunday or Monday. I don't know what day you're listening to this, but whatever day it is, hope it's a great day for you. Quick note before we get started for today's show, I want to tell you about the growth we've been seeing with this show and with Lions of Liberty Pride. Um, We're having some of the best download numbers we've ever had, and that is all thanks to you guys, thanks to our new listeners from our advertising on the Reason Roundtable. And the growth we've seen in the Lions of Liberty Pride, which you can join by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. We are now over our goal of $1,500 per month, which gets us to really doing the Libertarian National Convention the right way, getting a videographer there to document everything, put out great content, interviews, video, all that stuff for you guys to enjoy. So we're not stopping here. We want to keep going. Uh, The next goal is $2,000 a month. So please help us to get there. Uh, You can do that by joining us for as little as $5 per month. Actually, as little as $2 per month, you can get access to our Facebook group. If you want bonus content and all that good stuff, you got to give us at least five per month to get that. It's, it is so worth it. So please join us at the Lions of Liberty Pride, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. What is Felony Friday? Felony Friday is a show where every single week we're going to do a deep dive and we're going to examine and expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, if this is your first time listening to Felony Friday, your first time listening, To any of the shows we have here on Lions of Liberty, sit back, relax, enjoy the show, put your feet up. If you're driving, please don't put your feet up. But if you've been back several times, if this is a regular habit of listening, why haven't you subscribed? Or maybe you have subscribed. Thank you if you subscribed. But if you haven't, please do so. Whatever podcasting app you're listening on, please just scroll up to the top there, punch that subscribe button, and uh, you'll get every single episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast and of Felony Friday delivered to your little listening device. And also, if you really enjoy what you're hearing here, please think about uh, giving us a a five-star rating and a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, especially if you listen there, because it helps with the algorithms and all that crazy stuff. Without further ado, let's get rolling with today's show. Welcome to episode 215 of Felony Friday with my guest, Mark Whitney. Mark is an entrepreneur, a podcaster, spoken word artist, political satirist, comedian, and activist. He is the president of thelaw.net, former host and producer of Late Night Last Week, a uh, political satire podcast, and uh, he has toured uh, with his one-man show since 2006. He's also a convicted felon and 
Oh, yeah. He's running for president. Mark, welcome to Felony Friday. John, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, it's great to have you here. And we were just talking pre-show that I can't believe myself being a libertarian, being so focused on criminal justice reform, um, that I just heard of you and that you're running for president for Libertarian Party nomination, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago, I think I heard about it. You're not the first person to say that. I've been too busy making money to be on social media. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I have, I just want to start the law.net. It's a, it's a direct marketing model. It doesn't rely on passive social media. So we send the email out to the lawyers and they respond and they give us money. God bless the lawyers. And, and then when I go out and I tour my show full for a client, because I have a database of all the lawyers in the country, you know, if I'm going to DC, I send the email out to all the lawyers at Department of Justice to say, oh, by the way, there's going to be a show in town called Fool for a Client, and I kicked your ass. You might want to come see it. So uh, when I perform in D.C., uh, half the audience is usually uh, federal prosecutors and their significant others. And by the end of Fool for a Client, they're on their feet cheering the libertarian. You know, God bless America. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. And uh, so Fool for Our Client, that is your, what is it, like an hour and a half one-man show? Yeah, Fool, Fool right? for Our Client, the version that's online is an 84-minute political dramedy that I toured for five years across the North American independent theater circuit and in the United Kingdom. I've received many awards for it. The, uh, the show was so, I, I'm just going to brag a little bit about this one thing that I take personal pride in. I worked so hard on that show for five years before I pointed a camera on it. So the version that is online uh, is actually taken from a performance at the Studio Theater in Washington, D.C., which is a stone's throw from the White House and the Department of Justice. And the, the show became so good and so so layered and honed and profound mm -hmm. that I was honored to appear on the cover of Story Magazine with Drew Carey and Russell Brand, even though I am not, I'm not part of the industry. I live in San Diego. The industry is up in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So to be recognized uh, by Robert McKee, who published Story Magazine, uh, Robert McKee has trained every screenwriter and, and uh, writer of video games and, and writers of novels. And he's trained everybody who writes, and he's considered the Aristotle of our time. So for him to, him to single me out and honor me with that profile is the proudest creative achievement of my life, bar none. And uh, so I would recommend everyone make some popcorn, find somebody you're, you're close to Friday or Saturday night, watch full for a client, keep the Kleenex handy. And I think at the end, after you watch it, you're going to say, God damn, that's my president right there. I, I'll tell you what it is. I mean, it is really good. <laughs> I, I just, I just watched it earlier and, uh, I mean, f fantastic job. I mean, and you're not wrong. I mean, you're you're a funny guy. There's a lot of comedy in there, but also um, through your story, you know, you're telling your story of uh, your conviction and and fighting it and you know having to leave yes. your family. Yeah, there's there's some parts that yeah, it, it'll it, it'll tug at your heartstrings for sure. Right on. So let's and the B and the B story for those of you and uh, for this audience in particular, the B story in Fool for a Client traces the history of the war on drugs in a very creative way that'll make you sit up and you think you think you know the war on drugs. Watch Fool for a Client. Mm -hmm. So let's dig into to your story, um, particularly right um, what you talk about a Fool for a Client. Um, you know your experience getting arrested, getting convicted. Um, and then I, fighting your way out, be be in your own legal defense. So let's start at the at the beginning, and you know, for people to get the whole story, they can go watch uh, watch this on YouTube. I'll link to it on the show notes page. Full for our client, 
But right. give give a, give them a taste of you know what actually happened. How'd you end up in this situation? I'll do that, and and it starts with the word libertarian. Uh, in 1982, that was the first time I heard the word libertarian. I was 22 years old. Uh, when I went to, to high school, I only have a high school education. I went to high school at a little high school in Vermont, and I loved uh, music and theater, and I loved woodshop, and I loved the ski team. Uh, what I didn't like was sitting in a classroom, but the one class I loved was ninth grade civics with Mr. Ripley. That was his name, believe it or not, <laughs> right from the show. And so when I was 22, I was, uh, I was doing two things at once. My wife and I lived in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, and uh, three days a week I drove north to Vermont where I was starting an advertising agency. It became very successful. And four days a week I was driving south to Boston where I worked in TV with a young Bill O'Reilly who was a douchebag then. He knew what he wanted to be at a young age. And uh, so I worked in TV in Boston uh, on the third floor, and on the fifth floor was radio, and that radio station is still there, 680 AM WRKO. But back in 1982, I kid you not, nine hours a day of libertarian programming. The three wow. hosts, uh, three hours a day, they were all libertarians. And the most famous libertarian on that show, a guy named Gene Burns, he hosted the 10 to 1 shift. And uh, Gene was, a, was so hardcore libertarian, he ran for president in 1984 on the libertarian ticket. And if you go to markwhitney.com, you can watch me reintroducing Gene Burns to libertarians that are not 60 like I am and have never heard of Gene Burns. And what I, I found on YouTube, a speech that Gene gave to, uh, at a Georgia Libertarian Convention in 1991. And you will not hear a better unpacking of the Declaration of Independence than that 25-minute speech Gene gave. Gene had a tremendous impact on me at 22 because when he said the word libertarian and when he did his show, it sounded like ninth grade civics to me. That's what it sounded like to me. So I, I, it, it sounded like, and, and to this day, the libertarian national platform to me is the Constitution and Bill of Rights stated differently. It's in different words, but the principles of libertarianism are, are extracted from these founding documents. So Gene, at the beginning of his show, Three hours a day, Monday through Friday, 10 to 1, the beginning of his show, he opened the show with the same question, and he unpacked the same question three hours a day, and the question is this, what is the nature and role of government in a free society? Well, the nature of government is to fuck you up. The role of government is to secure these rights. That is the role of government. And he ended every three-hour show with, the Gene Burns program is brought to you by a grant from the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. I was like, God damn, that's good. I love that shit. Yeah. And so when I produced my, uh, my show late night last week, the number one political satire podcast on the planet, I tagged every episode with, uh, late night last week is brought to you by a grant from the First Amendment so that you get the point. Mm -hmm. I totally stole that from Gene Burns. So the, the Gene Burns program has an ironic link to my criminal conviction. The biggest guest, the biggest, most famous guest in all of talk radio land back in the 80s and early 90s is a guy named Erwin Schiff, who ran for president in the, under the Libertarian banner in 1996. And Erwin Schiff, for those of you who don't know his name, was, the, was and, and is to this day, even though he's passed away, the number one tax protester that's ever walked the face of the earth. And Erwin was convinced that the 16th Amendment wasn't ratified properly. He was convinced that income is not wages. And he wrote a book called The Federal Mafia. And uh, he, er, so the IRS wrote a book saying you need to pay your taxes, right? Erwin wrote eight books that say you don't. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so I never met Erwin when he would go on the Gene Burns program, but I would hear him during my one-hour commute from Manchester to Boston. I'm 22. I got a small business. So so Erwin would go on this show and say, you don't have to pay your taxes. I'm like, well, that sounds great. I just won't pay my taxes. So for a couple of years, I didn't. Uh, but around 25, uh, my wife and I were having a family, and I go, you know, I got to get my my shit together here. So uh, and and at the same time, I decided to get my shit together. Ben and Jerry's uh, went public and they started franchising. Now, that might not mean anything to somebody living in, in a big city, but I grew up in Vermont. I grew up in a little town of 200 people, 199. When I leave, they have to change the sign. Uh, my mom was the only vote for McGovern in 1972. And uh, she had a bumper sticker that said, don't blame me. I voted for McGovern. She was the only vote in our town for McGovern. You couldn't elect a Democrat in Vermont back in those days. They were just... They were just old-time Vermonters with John Deere hats. They were classic liberals, and they'd get together at the diner at 6 in the morning. They had more logic than all Democrats and Republicans put together, you know? Right. So, uh, so, so when Ben and Jerry said they were going to franchise, my advertising agency at that time was, had been around for five or six years. It was quite successful. I was a millionaire on paper except for the fact that I had this tax liability out there that the IRS was unaware of. <laughs> and so when I went down to the bank to borrow money to build Ben & Jerry's stores all over New Hampshire, I bought the franchise rights for New Hampshire. I gave the bank two tax returns that reflected what I should have reported to IRS. So now banks have, have a tax return that says one thing, and IRS have tax returns that say another. And that's fine. I, 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 would have, I, I was amending my returns at the time this one bank I did business with got in trouble with the feds. It was a little country bank in New Hampshire. And when the feds investigated this bank for making loans they're not meant to make, I had the largest loan in the history of the bank. They looked into me. They found the discrepancy on these tax returns. And next thing you know, I'm getting indicted by the feds. That's what it comes down to. And uh, all thanks to Erwin Schiff, goddammit, because I listened to him. <laughs> so, so here's the punchline to that. Um, <clears throat> In, uh, in uh, January of 1992, when uh, after my trial where I got convicted on some counts, I think the line from the show is the jury came back with mixed reviews, guilty, not guilty, and well hung. Um, but uh, I, I got convicted on some counts, and I had to go down. To, the judge gave me a timeout, uh, and I reported to prison. And on the first day, uh, who comes up to the lunch table and introduces himself as the nation's leading authority on the income tax? It's fucking Erwin Schiff. And I'm like, I know you. You're why I'm here. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to add insult to injury, it was a Friday, and the highlight of the week at Allenwood Federal Prison Camp was on Friday you'd get ice cream. And I'm like, oh, great. They put me in a fucking prison where the highlight is ice cream. I just had seven walk-in freezers full of ice cream, and I'm locked up with 900 people who the highlight of their week is ice cream. So at that point, I filed a petition for the death penalty, but it was not granted. Um, so, uh, so long story short, Erwin and I became great friends because of the 900 prisoners uh, detained at Allenwood Federal Prison Camp. On a given day, there were maybe nine or ten of us in the law library trying to get out, and Erwin was constantly fighting his way out. And uh, uh, so, so when I got out, I had learned my lesson. Not Erwin. Oh, no. Erwin would tell me what an expert he was on taxes. And I'd say, Erwin, you realize where we're having this conversation? You know, you realize where we are right now? And so Erwin got out in 1993 and 1994, and he immediately moved to Nevada and opened a store called paynoincometax.com. Well, that's not a good idea. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. I would not recommend that. 
And, uh, and I actually helped him edit the second version of his book, The Federal Mafia. And so Erwin, here's the deal with Erwin. Erwin did not have a criminal bone in his body. Uh, he got convicted three times on his third conviction in Nevada. The, he was like 75 and the judge gave him 12 years. So it was a death sentence. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, but uh, he didn't have a criminal bone in his body. And when he, uh, when he died, uh, he was memorialized in the New York Times and a big piece they did. It was on the front page about prisoners who were dying of cancer in prison, chained to hospital beds. And Erwin was one of those people. And uh, Peter Schiff, his, his very well-known son in Connecticut, mm -hmm. Uh, Peter tried to get his dad out of prison so he could come home and die at home. And his dad literally died chained to a hospital bed with two prison guards outside his door of cancer. And um, I don't care who you are. That is not winning. That's not winning. That is. Uh, th but but, you know, I joke about Erwin. That's a good point you bring up. Um, talking about not paying your, your in uh, income taxes, libertarians, you know, taxation is theft. That's our same Ta taxation, but, but that is literally true. Taxation is theft. It meets the definition. Someone puts a gun to your head. They yeah. make you pay them money. But what they don't, they don't complete the thought. Taxation is theft made legal. Uh, war is killing made legal. And we the people did it. Right. And it's made legal, meaning so if you don't do it, you end up in prison. And yes. how, can, how can you fight to change the law when, when you're in prison? Right? It's, it's, a, it's, not, it's not as easy. That is for sure. And uh, but or I, I loved Erwin because he had a great sense of humor. He's such a rogue. He had such a big heart. I've seen him naked in the shower several several times. Uh, nothing nothing special going on there. Uh, but he was just he was just this real funny Jew from from New York, man. And and he made me laugh. And uh, so, but the reason I like to talk about Erwin because to my mind, Erwin's greatest accomplishment had nothing to do with taxes. His book, The Federal Mafia. The Department of Justice successfully got a federal judge to order him not to sell that book in these here United States. And Irwin is the only author of any book since like 1890 to have been uh, forbidden from selling his book. And I think that's an enormous accomplishment when you think of the of the uh, the universe of horrible ideas people have put to paper. Mm -hmm. And Irwin Schiff hit that lottery. Uh, you know, rest in peace, Erwin Schiff. Mm -hmm. that, that is quite an accomplishment that you pissed somebody off that much. And, and now, of course, here you and I are. You're an independent journalist. I'm an independent journalist. We talk, mm -hmm. about, uh, we, we talk about political things in our shows. And now we have algorithms censoring people because the robot disagrees with your political views. And that's something that as libertarians, I'm, I'm going to be workshopping that in breakout sessions with libertarians throughout the country because I want to gather thoughts. I do not have the answers on this issue, but the principle of unfettered political speech has been rock solid. The courts have sucked on ballot access, but they've been great on political speech and keeping their grubby paws mm -hmm. off it. But now we have private sector robots violating the principle of unfettered political speech. And how do we solve that problem? It's an yeah, issue, it's, you know? It's, it's a huge yeah. issue. And especially when you talk about elections and influencing people, when you think about it, the, the person who writes the algorithm or the people, the group of people, whatever it is, for Twitter, for Facebook, for Instagram, the people who write those algorithms are essentially the most powerful people in the world. They are. Congratu and, congratulations for recognizing that. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and you can say, well, they're private companies. Are they? Are they really private companies? Uh, maybe they right. started as private companies, but a lot of them have kind of morphed into these uh, pseudo corporate 
government companies that, that are just yep. so entangled with the government. They're, they're not. So, okay. It's, so it's since a very you, difficult question. So since you get it, let's spend two or three minutes unpacking it. And I'll tell you, sure. I'll tell you kind of my thinking on it at the moment. When I, when, uh, uh, I, I like to say that uh, I'm running for president, I'm running to be like the fifth most powerful person in the country, right? Uh, the highest office, of course, is citizen. So I'm running for the second highest office. But then you've got Mark Zuckerberg and Peter Dorsey and, and the CEO of Google, the, the woman who's the CEO of, of YouTube. And, uh, you know, and Zuckerberg, these people, they are the most powerful people in the world. They're most mm -hmm. pow more powerful than all the government leaders combined. They operate without borders. And here's the issue. Here is... The legal, uh, the, the legal summary of it, the, the Section 230 of the Communications Act exempts us from suing these companies because they are, their status is that of a platform, of a neutral platform. That's why we can't sue them. So that's, that's, that's number one. Number two, the terms of service agreements that we sign conflict with the terms of citizenship, yet we're forced to sign them. And I say forced in quotes. Of course, we're not forced. But the reality is that the operating system of this century is a screen. That mm -hmm. is reality. The operating system, when, when the founders got together to write the Declaration of Independence, somebody said, uh, does anyone have a pen? And someone said, no, but I got a feather. And then somebody said, anybody got paper? And somebody said, no, but I got this piece of animal hide. I mean, the Declaration of Independence was literally created with animal parts. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, we're working with screens. So the terms of service say, you can, it's a lot of words, but the only line that counts in the terms of service agreements we sign, there are two lines that count. The line that says they can remove you for any reason or no reason at all. And the line that says if you have a problem with any one of these companies, you have to submit the binding arbitration. And the punchline to that story is the Supreme Court just ruled if you agree to an arbitration agreement, you can't join a class action suit. Wow. So, so, they've, so citizens are boxed out. So now we have, here's what I think is going to happen next year if I'm not the president of the United States. What's going to happen next year is we're going to get treated to a show. And the Democrats and Republicans and the tech companies are going to put on a show called We're Breaking Up These Companies. And the tech companies are going to have their lawyers on K Street write that legislation. The Democrats and Republicans are going to ratify it. Trump is going to sign it and bury it on page 44,000 in a footnote. It's going to define, they're going to define journalism. They're going to define it. And they're going to write independent journalists right off the Internet. And I know that because I got Diane Feinstein in a clip that I'm going to be putting in a pre-produced video soon on my platform where she says we need to get to a place where journalists have bona fides and the First Amendment is a privilege. Those are her words. It's not a right. It's a privilege. And, and they will do this. They'll write independent journalists right off the Internet. It'll be unconstitutional, but it'll take us 20 years to unring that bell in the courts. And when I'm president, that won't fucking happen because yeah. I'm going to I'm going to educate everybody in this country to contact their congressman, because here's the problem. Every world leader knows that when Ed Snowden took that shit from NSA, he went to an independent journalist. And if you are an incumbent office holder and you are a witness to that, you're saying we have got to fix that shit and make sure that never happens again. That's why they're going to do what I say. 100% agree with you. And that, I mean, that, that's some scary shit. And <laughs> it is scary it, shit. 
and the reason the reason they will do it is because they're losing their power. Um, exactly. Journalists are, are, are yes. taking the attention, taking the ad dollars, and that's that's everything. <laughs> Correct. Every minute somebody spends watching what we're doing right now is a minute they're not consuming the propaganda on MSNBC, Fox, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post. You and I right now are assigning superior ideas to our listeners and viewers than they get from the mainstream media. And, and, the, and the Democrats and Republicans and the Wall Street traded media, they, what they have in common is that all of these organizations are being disrupted by people like you and me, mm-hmm. and they're going to come after us. And that's why I need to be president. And that's why I'm telling libertarians this year in Austin, understand the year you're running in. This year is the year that the mainstream parties are going to nominate fringe candidates, Trump and Sanders. That's a fascist and a socialist. The fringe party, if they nominate me, they're going to be nominated a mainstream candidate who talks about privacy and equal protection of the law and access to justice and free speech. Normal, fundamental shit. And one of the things I learned performing full for a client for five or six years is I learned, and this is especially true in D.C., when I'm in there on a Saturday night in the studio theater, 300 people, and it's sold out, and everyone's relaxed, they've had a nice dinner, they didn't work, they, they just want to laugh and learn, and mind you, half the audience is prosecutors. There's a lot of laughter, but there are also these poignant moments where you can hear a pin drop in that theater, and what's happening right there is I am reminding this audience what they forgot they believe. That's what I'm doing. I'm reminding them what they forgot they believe because they're just on a treadmill like everyone else trying to survive. And they are in news bubbles that feed shit into their brains. When they take an hour and a half out, they come see fool for a client. They're moved to tears because I'm reminding them what they forgot they believe. Mm -hmm. These people are already with us. They already believe in these principles uh, uh, that we're talking about that are enshrined in our founding documents. And all we need is a president on that platform to continually, 24 hours a day, remind people what they forgot they believe. And that is, that is how we turn from an authoritarian government to a libertarian government. It's taking a real quick ad break here. One of our Lions of Liberty Pride members, Tyler Colford, he reached out to me and he recently upgraded to our $100 level where he gets an ad. And uh, he decided to use this ad today because he has a special message for you out there. He wanted me to let you all know that he's in the long walks through the woods. He's in the comic books, Graham Hancock novels, video games, and Austrian economics. And if you're into some of those same things, then check out his rap group, Jenks Inc. It's available on all streaming platforms. I was just listening to his song, Bootstraps, on Spotify. So check out Bootstraps. Check out Jenks Inc. That's J Y. N-X-I-N-C J-Y-N-X-I-N-C Jinx Inc. Check it out. I agree with you. Let's, uh, let's focus in a little bit and talk about your case. Talk about United States versus Whitney. <laughs> more specifically, your defending yourself and how you went about doing that because right. that's not easy to do. So um, anything Correct. you can share on that? Yeah. Uh, so by the time I got to the point where it was United States versus Whitney, I had gone through a proceeding called Inray uh, Ellerton P. Whitney and Inray was a, a two-year bankruptcy proceeding involving three corporations and myself and my wife. So there were 
there were three or four civil fraud trials in, in that bankruptcy proceeding where the bank said uh, that I had misled them with these tax returns. And we had one of the best bankruptcy judges in the country, James Yakos, who has since passed away. Uh, he presided over an enormous utility case in New England that's world famous. And he, he, this is a guy who does not wear a robe on the bench. He just wears a suit and tie and he rules from the bench. And he listened to all of these cases where the banks were bitching and moaning about me supposedly tricking them into loaning me money. And he laughed them out of the court. He said, he said nothing. He didn't use the word moron, but what he meant was nothing this moron Mr. Whitney gave you, uh, uh, said, uh, uh, gave you morons at the banks any basis to loan him money because he didn't provide you with any evidence that he could pay you back. You all just got excited about Ben and Jerry. And that's exactly what happened. So I got a complete discharge under those circumstances. And what the difference in the civil fraud and the criminal fraud is that in the criminal fraud, I was like Ed Snowden. I was charged with a strict liability crime. So the reason Ed Snowden is in Russia is because he's been charged with espionage, which is a strict liability crime. So to bring strict liability down to street level, strict liability, an example everyone can understand. If you rear end somebody driving, if you hit them from behind, that's strict liability. They don't need to send the insurance adjuster out. You're 100% at fault. Mm -hmm. So Snowden, all the government has to prove in his case is that he took shit. He doesn't get to turn to the jury and say, yes, but I took an oath to defend the Fourth Amendment. He can't say that. All they have to prove is that he took it and he's guilty. And now he faces life in prison. In my case, all the government had to do was show up my previously uh, you know, previous tax returns from 85 and 86, where I reported only income I had on a W-2 and the tax returns they give the banks, which reported what I actually earned when you include my advertising agency. Mm -hmm. And those tax returns don't match. And for that reason, the crime is giving the documents. It doesn't even matter if you get the money. The crime is giving the document, thereby infecting the, the integrity of the files at the bank. So when the FDIC auditors come in and they're looking at the files, there's a presumption, presumption that those files are accurate. And when you insert an inaccurate document, that's bank fraud. Hmm. That's it. doesn't matter whether you get the money. It does, none of that shit matters. So, so, ju so, so in my just, case- So just even yeah. the act of applying for the loan with that document was bank Correct. fraud. Correct. Correct. And, and you know, every now and then, just, to, just for therapy, when I'm driving by a bank, I walk in and I tell them a lie and then I run back to the car, you know, just, just, just for a joke. You know, I go, hi, my name is Bob. And then I run back out to the car and I jump in and drive away, you know, but yeah, it's, it's so, so in my case, my payments were current. I never missed a payment. Uh, the, the banks were fully secured. None of that shit mattered. What really mattered was that in the bankruptcy case, uh, we pissed off a lawyer who represented one of the banks. He was president of the New Hampshire Bar Association. He was well connected with the feds and they got me indicted. But I've never, I've never once, I've never once sought sympathy for it because mm -hmm. what I did was, was stupid. And the reason, the reason it was stupid is because, uh, I had all, I had all of the intelligence and many of the skills I have today. What I, what I did not, what I, what I, I was financially illiterate. I was a financial illiterate. So I was a successful entrepreneur, but I was all front office and back office. And my wife would tell you, quote unquote, I thought the, I thought accounting was for pussies. I said that many times. And, uh, uh, I don't, I don't think that anymore. And so one of the reasons I feel confident running for president is I stand on the shoulders of my sons or both successful entrepreneurs. They're millionaires by the time they were 35. They accomplished what I failed to accomplish, but they did it by running both the front office and the back office well. So when I'm president, 
financial literacy is going to be a big part of my uh, presidency because, you know, Bernie Sanders' idea of financial literacy is getting the government to pay off your student loans. Mm-hmm. My idea of financial literacy is you are a fucking moron to sign it. Your parents were morons because they raised you without being financially illiterate. And I say that as a guy that suffered the worst kind of consequences you can for being stupid. But I'm also a big fan of accountability and the learning that comes to adversity as a result of that. And that is that is libertarianism 101 right there. Go out and step on your dick and learn from it. Just to stick on uh, student loans for a minute. (laughs) What are your thoughts on bankruptcy rights for student loans? Well, the one way to end predatory student loans is to make the loans dischargeable in bankruptcy, mm-hmm. because the minute that happens, predatory student loans go away. The only reason that student loans exist is because they're not dischargeable. You think about it. You're 18 and you can get a signature loan for any amount of money. You can get a signature loan at 18 for whatever the college is charging. They could be charging $100,000 a year. Crazy. You can get a signature loan for that on your signature. No credit. You turned 18 yesterday, and they'll give you that money because they know they're getting it back. They're regardless back. of your major, regardless of any of that. It's, it's yeah, insanity. you could be majoring in psychology, and they'll still give you the money. It's yeah. crazy. <laughs> it's, it's crazy unless you're a bank, okay? So if you have the, the disproportionate economic and political influence to get a law passed, that this class of loans that you're making to helpless young people is not dischargeable in bankruptcy, that's not crazy. That's not crazy. That's good business if you're a bank. Yeah, it's uh, crony business, right? But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, good business in quotes, right? Yeah, for, for but this, them. but this yeah. is this is how they think. You know, when I started the Law.net, Pat and Boggs sent a big a big lobbying firm from D.C. They sent a managing director out here to uh, San Diego. He brought me down to the launch room and looking at the yachts. And he says, you know, you can have one of those yachts if you let me get a law passed for you. It says the government has to buy your software. And I said, I'm not interested, dude. I'm doing this to democratize the law. It's 50 bucks a month. It's never going to be higher than that. Get on your next plane back to D.C. You know, it's all about merit for me. So, so what exactly is uh, the law.net? What, what service does it provide? How does it help people? Okay, so the law.net came to be. Uh, uh, the, the beauty of the law.net is, is uh, a, a couple of lawyers from Harvard and Yale uh, took me out. And ever since then, the lawyers have been paying me. <laughs> and, and if they knew that I was a high school graduate and a convicted felon and went to a comedy college, I wouldn't be making any money. If you can, and, find, yeah. if you can find a way to make lawyers pay you, you're exactly. doing pretty well. That's a pretty good trick, especially, especially when you are not yourself a lawyer. But yeah. what I'm able to do, looking like I look, you know, I, I should, by this face should be carved in Mount Rushmore. Come on. Let's just jump to the punchline and carve this face into Mount Rushmore right now. So I take, I take this face and I put it on the internet. Look, I got the blonde hair, the blue eyes, the not guilty skin pigmentation. All the elements are there, right? And you put that face on the internet and you say, as a litigator, and they go, well, that guy's a fucking lawyer. Right. Because I look like one. And I say as a litigator, I am a litigator. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, but uh, so the law, what the law net does is, OK, so here's what I learned in the prison law library. Nobody knows what the law is. And I don't have them sitting right here, but I have three court orders signed by Stephen Breyer, who's on the U.S. Supreme Court in the United States versus Whitney. And all of the, these each of these three orders represents three separate appeals that I won. But if you go down to the law library and you go into the stacks and you look at the books, none of those opinions are published in the books. Mm -hmm. 
So when I go out and talk to bar associations and teach these knuckle draggers how to do legal research, <laughs> I, I, I start with nobody, and mind you, I have judges in the audience. I start with, thanks for coming. Nobody knows what the law is. And they look at me and go, huh? They look like a dog that you just fed a juji fruit to. You know how dogs chew juji fruits? They kind of turn their head in a weird way. They're like, what the fuck is this in my mouth? It's just like that. And, then, and they're looking at me go, what are you talking about? And I hold up these three court orders and I say, you all, especially the judges here, you arbitrarily, Marbury versus Madison says, says courts decide, say what the law is. That's what it says. That's bedrock constitutional law. Marbury versus Madison, courts say what the law is, and that is consistent with Article 3. But the fact of the matter is only about 2% of what judges write is published in law books. The other 98%, nobody knows what it says unless you happen to work at the Department of Justice, you see everything because you are a party to every case. Mm. So they end up with an unfair advantage. The judges unilaterally decide what is and is not a published opinion. And it's only when they stamp it published that it makes it into the book at the library. Oh, wow. Right. And then so so now we have electronic databases and a lot of these unpublished so-called unpublished opinions show up in these databases. But you cannot cite them as legal precedent. If you do, you'll be punished and fined if you're a lawyer. Uh, so you can't cite them as binding precedent. So you can you can be in a, what state are you in right now? Pennsylvania. Okay, so Pennsylvania is the third federal circuit. So you can be an attorney arguing at the United States Court of Appeal for the third circuit, right? And you can have an opinion written by that judge yesterday that is on all fours, that agrees with everything you're saying, but it's unpublished, and you can't cite that case as binding precedent, right? You cannot do it. Uh, you can you can maybe allude to it that is persuasive. In in California, the the rule the state rule in California. My wife just got her law degree and she clerked for the California Court of Appeals. And and if you cite an unpublished opinion to a California state court, they'll they'll they won't haul you away in cuffs, but they, it's damn close. Mm -hmm. They will move for you to be disbarred. Wow. And uh, uh, so so that's why I started the law.net. So the, so. If uh, uh, a lawyer that you might use on Main Street there in Pennsylvania, for that guy to see the law using one of my competitors, West Hall and Lexus, it costs him $500 a month to see the Pennsylvania state cases, the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, the uh, federal districts in Pennsylvania, the third, second, third Circuit, and the Supreme Court. Those are the courts that define his world as a lawyer. It costs him about $500 a month. Well, what happens is, uh, especially if you're litigating in the federal system, you have to go outside your primary jurisdiction and see what the other 96 federal circuits and the other, the other 96 districts and the other 12 federal circuits have to say about the world. That is usuriously prohibitive. So then you're calling your friend to see if he's got the book or you're driving two hours to a law library to try to find out what the law is. And mind you, you can't see the unpublished opinions. So what the law does is it pulls all this shit together and it gives you all the law from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon for under 50 bucks a month, thereby democratizing the law and attempting to, uh, in my way, level the playing field. Mm -hmm. So the best lawyer in the room isn't the lawyer at the Department of Justice who gets to see all the law. It's literally the best lawyer in the room that day because everyone got to see everything. That's what the law.net is all about. And it's 50 bucks a month. It's never been higher than that for 20, for 20 years. It never will be higher than that. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so 
40,000 lawyers use, have, have uh, subscribed to the law.net and they, uh, and they are by and large uh, lawyers who are in one or two person firms and we provide a solution to them. We also have many Native American peoples, uh, uh, general counsel for uh, tribes across the country who subscribe and also some federal and state agencies and also some big firms. But it's really uh, a solution that has been embraced by uh, private sector firms with three lawyers or less. That's awesome. So I, I can't have you on here and not ask you a couple, you know, questions about your uh, presidential campaign, you know, the prototypical right. questions that, that everyone gets. Yeah. Um, so well, obviously, first step, get the libertarian nomination. Assuming you do that, how do you get on the debate stage? How do you uh, be competitive being a uh, libertarian in the race? Such an easy question. I wouldn't have gotten in the race if I didn't have this answer for you. So the, the last uh, three go-arounds, the Libertarian Party has nominated what I like to call certified pre-owned Republicans. And I get why they do that. It's hard to find a great candidate from within such a small party. The Libertarian Party has an amazing back end where you've got all these worker bees through some fucking miracle have, have created 50 state ballot access so you have a legitimate path to the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. The problem is you need a candidate can take advantage of that path. So the answer to your question is, you've seen fool for a client I'm a media candidate, okay? So the Democrats and Republicans are boring. But they get 24-7 media coverage because they've got 24-7 money. And it's a, it's a bargain that they make. And the bargain is the CNN says, okay, Pete Buttigieg, you go out to the Des Moines, hour, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and pretend you care about Iowa, and we'll take your picture, and then you'll raise money, and you give that to us to run advertising. You go to New Hampshire, we'll take your picture there, and, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's like the recycling logo. It, it goes on for yeah. two years. Yeah. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but Democratic National Committee, when they do a debate on CNN, they get 15% of the advertising. They really? get the commission. They get the advertising agency commission. I did not know that. Wow. That's there you ridiculous. go. I've got the contract. <laughs> <laughs> And someday I'll talk about that. So here's, here's how it's going to be different this year. I'm saying that we need to understand the year we're running in. The mainstream parties are going to run fringe candidates. If they nominate me, the fringe party is going to run a mainstream candidate. But I'm not going to be somebody who gets courtesy interviews so Judy Woodruff on PBS can show the world how fair she is. I'm somebody who the greedy, self-serving Ivy League journalists who work in the Wall Street media are going to look at me and my family, and they're going to be thinking one thing. Pulitzer Prize. That's what they're going to be thinking. Nobody's, you know, I loved Harry Brown in 1996. I loved Gary Johnson. No one's going to get a Pulitzer Prize telling their story. They're going to be tripping over themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to go on Jimmy Kimmel. I'm going to walk out and do five minutes of killer stand-up, okay? As a, as a guy who has the same path to the White House as the Democrats and Republicans, I'm going to walk out and I'm going to go, hey, what do we got? Demo we Democrats or Christians? And that'll wake everyone the fuck up. And then we'll go from there. And I'll go sit down with Kimmel. And I'm going to say to Kimmel, listen, Kimmel, you know, we're going to have a nice hug because artists hug, right? And I'm going to talk about how I covered him for four years on late night last week. I know every joke he's told in the last four years. I'm going to say to him, listen, Jimmy, I got my name on the ballot for president of the United States as a high school graduate, a guy who went to a comedy college. I got my name on the ballot in all 175,000 voting precincts for less than what President Pussy Grabber paid Stormy Daniels. The Democrats spent hundreds of millions of dollars to not get on the ballot. Who do you want running your government? You know, yeah. the guy, the guy who gets his name on the ballot for a hundred grand 
or, or the people who spend hundreds of millions and can't get on the ballot, right? I just think, I just think that's such a powerful question. And I think that, uh, I think especially uh, late night is going to have, it's just a late night and Bill Maher and anybody really has got a sense of humor. They're going to totally bond with Fool for a Client. And I think for about 72 hours, the headlines are going to be, oh, it's fucking libertarians nominated a felon. What a bunch of morons. And then they're and right and yeah, then, but that's, and then but, but that's good yeah. though that's because that that attention that'll draw attention to you and make people look at you i mean people think of that as a negative but i think that's no. a positive no it's a credential and you're not mm-hmm. much of a libertarian if you haven't been locked up by the way you know <laughs> and uh uh so so they're gonna they're gonna look at so what you do is you play rope-a-dope with these people i know these people i raised my kids in an ivy league community in new hampshire before we moved to california they think they know everything you, you play into that bias that the libertarians are clueless, and then they interview me, and they compare me to Trump, Sanders, Trump, Biden, whoever it is, and, and, and the, 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 here's the thing. The Republicans who are disgusted with Trump and the rest of the world who would never vote for him, they don't have anywhere to go if it's Sanders. They don't have anywhere to go if it's Trump and Sanders because uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're all capitalists. They like mm-hmm. the private sector. They like saving their money. They like bribing their kids into college by laundering money through the tutor. That's who these people are. And so they're going to look at me and they're going to see a guy who's been in the private sector for 40 years. They're going to see a family that bends but doesn't break. They're going to be inspired by my autistic 30-year-old kid, 32-year-old son who grew a $15 million Amazon store out of his bedroom while he was playing video games. It's amazing. We got some great stories to tell America. And one of the reasons I'm running for president is I'm just stunned by what my sons have done. And I sit back and I look, you know, there's something great and awesome about the culture of my family. And I can't wait to tell the country about it. And I believe that these reporters at these places, they have a heart and soul. And I think it's going to touch them emotionally. And I think they're going to see an opportunity. Parties do not win elections. Candidates do. And I believe that right now I am the best candidate for president of the United States in any party. It just so happens I'm libertarian. Mm-hmm. So are you traveling around right now to, to all the state conventions? How many state conventions do you plan on hitting? So I probably will have hit 25 by the time I'm done. Uh, and I'm, I'm doing other things that are not state conventions. Like I'm going to be at the, I'm going to be in the students for Liberty debate in DC. There's going to be like 3000 people there. It's going to be on mm-hmm. C-SPAN. I mean, it's an honor to be invited all my, my wife told me, I wasn't sure if I should get in or not, you know, cause I get that the, the 30 year old felony conviction is going to be a thing for people. But my, my wife assured me that our family has done enough to also offset that. And she said, you know what, if you just put yourself out there, the best political operatives in the libertarian party are going to be calling you on the phone. And that's exactly what's happened. Boomer Shannon is the president of Whitney 2020 Inc. Boomer is the best. And we have a team now that is up to about I don't know. I, last time I checked this morning, it's up to about 20 people and mm-hmm. that's double what it was last week. And next week it'll be double what it is this week. So we are on fire. I believe we're going to win this nomination. And if you interview any other libertarian presidential candidates, I will challenge them to make this pledge. If, if I come out of Austin and I am the nominee of the libertarian party, I pledge that I will be at all three debates. I may not be on the debate stage. I think I will be on the debate stage. I think I've got a great shot, far more than a non-zero chance of getting on the debate stage. But if I'm not on the debate stage in those three debates, I will get arrested three times. I'll get arrested three times. 
And if you're running, if you're running to be the libertarian nominee in 2020 and you're not willing to make that pledge, you ought to get off the fucking stage. Well, I, I think I do know a couple other libertarian candidates running who would probably make the same pledge, but probably, oh, that's probably great. most and won't. I, probably and most. I will I will applaud them if they do, but I'm the first one to make the pledge. I, I like that. I like that pledge. Um, it's a great way to get attention. So yep. one last question. You mentioned your growing campaign. You're picking up momentum. You're on fire. Right. Um, if yep. people want to get involved, they want to donate your campaign, they want to volunteer, they want to do all that stuff, uh, what, what do they do? You just go to markwhitney.com, markwhitney.com, and uh, there are little forms there you can fill out. You can volunteer. You can donate some money. Uh, I got this thing. Uh, I got this thing started with uh, with fifty or sixty thousand dollars of my own money to seed the campaign. Um, and uh, after we come out of the California State Convention, we'll be doing some serious fundraising. I think a significant amount of money is going to come in. And if I'm the nominee, I think I think that we're going to get hundreds of millions of dollars in free. Uh, publicity. And I think that we're going to raise record amounts of money. And if I get on that debate stage, I would just ask everybody to remember Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura was polling at 10%. He was charismatic. He had a huge personality. He had years of experience on stage like I do. And when they put him up there with a couple of douchebags, he became the governor. And if I get up there with a couple of douchebags, I will be the next president of the United States. I like that. Mark Whitney, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming on today's show. Hey, man, this is great. This is great. Shoot me your personal email. I want to keep in touch with you. You're a very good host. You do a great job of asking questions without actually asking questions. So good thank for you. you. Today you was much. a great day, and I appreciate you having taken the time to talk to me. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to today's show, another great episode of Felony Friday. As you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, and just just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing for the great price of $0 per month. You get everything that we have here. So please check everything out. And uh, if you like it all, please think about, consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Lions of Liberty. And the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to to talk about politics, liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, which you can find by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook, clicking search, comes up, say you want to join it, answer a question, bam, you're in, and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you. So check that out. That's all I have for today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is liberty burning.